Welcome to the Chatter in the Box podcast, where your hosts, Liam Skiffington and Matt Indominico, discuss all things baseball. From breaking news to the latest free agent signings, they'll dive into today's game with some of the top minds from around the league. You can catch the latest episode of the Chatter in the Box podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, or Amazon Music, or visit our website at www.chatterinthebox.com. All right, Chatter in the Box, episode three is officially underway. Matt, I am fired up for this week. I've been talking about it for the last probably month. And even before we started this podcast, I told you I had two white whale guests. One of them was Uh, Johnny Damon. And today we have the other one. Today we are honored to be joined by, actually, let me rewind a little bit. I've been reaching out to this guest for close to 10 years, to, to the guest, to his team, to his agent, to everyone. About two years ago, we finally connected. I finally got in touch with this guy. He finally emailed me back. And then about two or three years ago, COVID hit. We weren't able to set anything up, unfortunately. But a couple of weeks ago, he got back to me. We finally got to a back and forth. And I am happy to say that he is joining us today. It has been a long time coming. We are honored to be joined by R.A. Dickey, 2012 Cy Young Award winner, knuckleball pitcher. And I'll say, when Liam told me about this guest, this white whale guest, I didn't believe we were going to get him on so soon on episode three, to be quite honest. Not to burst his own little personal bubble here, but I didn't think it was going to happen. Truth be told, we have him here today. Um, he will be joining us any second. Um, and you know, just to give you guys all a listener, and I'm sure most of you should know at least who R.A. Dickey is and what he's done in his career. He was a guy that's been through so much adversity. He started his career back in 2001 in a pitcher that you thought, if you were watching at the time, was you know losing his steam. If you looked at his numbers, there was one season where he was posting ERA near six, seven. Uh, he was losing velocity, and around 2005, he changed things. And if you know who R.A. Dickey is, you know what happened in 2005. He implemented the knuckleball. Not many pitchers throughout baseball history have been so successful with the knuckleball. He finished his career a top five knuckleballer of all time and the first ever to win a Cy Young. And he actually got better as he got older and got better at the knuckleball. So excited for this episode. Here's White Whale number one for you, Liam. Merry Christmas 2023 edition. This is your gift. All right, buddy. So... Yeah, we'll toss things over to R.A. He should be hopping on any minute, and um, we'll be an exciting show. And here's the man himself, R.A. Thanks for stepping in the box today. So since you retired, R.A., what have you been doing? Like, how do you spend your time in the, I guess it's a full-off season now? Yeah, well, I have a 40-acre farm here in Franklin, Tennessee, and that keeps me busy in the summer and spring months particularly. And then I also have four kids that I'm chasing around, two daughters that are in college and a son that's 16 and a son that's 11 or 12 now. And I coach his summer team and get to coach a little bit for the high school team. And so all that together, you know, adds up to some busy days. Either of your sons, have you tried to teach them the knuckleball? How does that work? No, you know, you kind of, you, you turn to the knuckleball because nothing else is working. So I'm trying to teach my 16-year-old how to throw hard first. And then if that doesn't work, maybe then we'll go to the knuckleball. But 
nobody's out there looking for the next Hoyt Wilhelm, right? Like they're all they're all looking for the next Steven Strasburg. So we're trying to figure out ways for him to to get velocity, not not subtract velocity, right? That's what you have to do with a knuckleball. Mm-hmm. Do you keep up with uh, baseball today, RA, since your retirement, or not really? Are you kind of fully removed from it? You know, I I'm not fully removed. I have a lot of friends who are still in the industry as a whole and players that still play, and so I'm I'm much more loyal to to you know people than things. So. I keep up with the people that I still know mostly. And, you know, I got a lot of front office people that I really enjoy being around. So keep up with them too. Who would you say is your best friend within the game still? Ooh, well, my best friend within the game. That's a great question. Well, a guy who just retired, actually, his name was J.A. Happ. He's mm-hmm. a really good friend of mine for Toronto that we're, I'd say we're pretty good friends. And, you know, I have a lot of friends that are in the front office that I still stay in contact with guys from Toronto and you know like John Daniels was a friend for a while and Alex Anthopoulos for the Braves now Brian Snicker was one of my favorite managers still still keep up with him you know and then a lot of teammates like my my last year was 2017 so like Freddie Freeman Dansby Swanson some of the guys that were there when I was there I'm still in contact with Mm -hmm. so all right when you were coming up you know and correct me if I'm wrong you were on the cover of baseball america with team usa right correct and from that picture a doctor noticed that your arm was hanging a little bit differently and and you went to get an mri and discovered that you were actually born without an ulnar collateral ligament yeah that's correct you know i didn't make the discovery dr james andrews in in birmingham made that discovery when they did the mri we took multiple MRIs to make sure that he was seeing it right because it was such a bizarre situation because I'd never been hurt. And so the discovery was made in 1996 when I agreed to contract with the Rangers. And then they took that bonus off the table because they found I was kind of like the Kumar Rocker situation of a couple of years ago with the Mets and they were getting damaged goods. So that's kind of how that that went. They said they, they took the offer off the table and just I went home and thought I was going to go back for my senior year at UT. And they called me a day before the draft and said, hey, we got 75 grand. And, you know, you were still a first round pick. We still think that you got something to offer. So you either decide to go back to college or you come on. And I, I decided to go on. Uh, and all right, your original offer was close to a million dollars, was it not? Yeah, I think all in with the college stuff, it was probably about a million bucks. And in 1996, you know, I was just, I think I was the 17th or 18th pick overall. Um, that was a healthy number. And, you know, I thought, okay, I'm going to start my major league career or my, at least my professional career. And, you know, all that was taken off the table in, in a day, really. And that was tough to kind of process through for sure. At that yeah. point, oh, did you think so? quitting and just giving up i'm sure like you've been through so much adversity over your career i'm sure at some point the thought of quitting had to have popped into yeah you know it it wasn't necessarily in that moment you know i i part of my i I think part of my dna that's that's really served me well as a knuckleball pitcher in particular was just being stubborn you know i wasn't going to have anybody tell me i couldn't do something and that that not always it's sometimes that's toxic but I think in this situation you know it was certainly an attribute that helped me to be resilient and and persevere through some stuff that other people might have just said hey it's time to go do something else but I I really felt I had something to offer the game and you know I wasn't hurt and over time you know I just I realized that I just I could do it and believed in myself and I had other people around me who believed in me too yeah all right walk us through 2012 so you look at your Cy Young year ups and downs, like you said, what was clicking for you that year that maybe you just weren't seeing early on in your career? Well, uh, I think 
I was confident for one, you know, I think that process started for me in 2010, really, you know, I had a pretty good year in 2010. I think I threw close to 180 innings and missed a month of the season or a little over a month because I was in Buffalo in the minor leagues and just was having a really good triple A start to the year, which is why I got called up in 2010. But, you know, in 2010, something clicked for me in in 10 and I just felt like I could be consistent. And that's what, you know, all the front offices are looking for that thing that they can trust, right? That metric that they can trust and Hopefully they can project out that this guy is going to be this or this down the road. And, you know, I was showing them that a knuckleball could be a trustworthy pitch. And that's hard to do because it's a pitch that, you know, it's hard to really evaluate in sabermetrics or, you know, on pitch FX or, you know, rep soda, whatever, whatever mechanisms they were using to try to evaluate that pitch. It, it, it defies it defies all that stuff. And so I had to prove and reprove myself a lot before I ever got an opportunity. And in 2010, I got that opportunity and felt like I was really confident with what I could do. And from there, it was just an evolution of learning how to pitch with it and then working in my secondary stuff to manage counts with. And and I figured that piece out. And, and then it was just, you know, I never saw another day in the minor leagues after 2010. And in particular with your knuckleball, is it true that you don't necessarily know where the ball is going to end up in the mitt and it's just about controlling it? Can you kind of like walk the listeners through how that works sure. in terms of controlling the knuckleball as best you can? Yeah. You know, I don't think it's necessarily a pitch that I, I knew where it was going to end up uh, in the mitt. Now, I knew I knew that if I started at the right height that it was going to be a strike somewhere in the strike zone. But, you know, I could throw that pitch 20 different times and literally it would do 20 different things. And so if that was me as a pitcher, think about it as a hitter. If I didn't know where it was going to go, there's no way the hitter could know where it was going to go. And so that was – that's part of the success of what makes a knuckleballer successful is is you're going to throw the same pitch that's going to look identical, but because of the way the shape, the seams are shaped, or maybe it has a quarter of a revolution on it instead of zero revolution on it, then it's going to do different things and react differently in the climate. And, you know, is it humid that day? Is it not? Are you indoor? Or are you not out? indoor you outdoor you know all kinds of things affect it and so my my biggest thing was i've got to get the right release point if i get the right release point then i knew that it was going to be a special day probably because i could just get it going at the right height height was much more important than in and out for me because i couldn't really control that piece i mean there were certain days like in 2012 to your first question there were starts yeah. that i could make do just about whatever i wanted and those were far and few between but they were that they were out there cool. all right so when the knuckleball is really dancing and you really have no control over it in the pitching coach or the manager, or the catcher comes out and talks to you. What are those conversations like? Cause there's no way it can be the same thing as talking to a conventional pitcher. Now that's a good question. You know, I, the best coach pitching coaches I've ever had, you know, Dan Warden comes to mind with the New York Mets. You know, I had Chuck Hernandez in Atlanta. He was great. Um, Pete Walker in Toronto. He was great. The, the, the ones for me that were the best were the ones that I could kind of present a checklist to when I got there and say, Hey, I know you don't have my experience with a knuckleballer because there's only one of us in the league and really there's only probably three or four in all of baseball and so they didn't have an ego about that they said okay yeah this makes sense this makes sense and so they would hold me accountable to a a list that i would all that i would give to them and i knew what made me go by working with phil necro and charlie huff and tim wakefield and all the guys that i had kind of mentored underneath i knew i knew uh kind of what made me tick and as a knuckleballer you know it's a it's a lonely it's a lonely craft because you have to be your own best coach that was the number one rule that charlie huff taught me was you know there's not not a pitching coach out there that's going to be able to have walked a mile in your shoes unless you get me or tim wakefield or somebody like that and that wasn't going to happen so i had to be real proactive and in, in making sure i knew my mechanic well enough and deeply enough that i could communicate it where other people could see when something was off and and tell me about it 
What were some of those things, like some of those cues on that list that you would uh, make your coaching staff hold you accountable for? Well, you know, I mean, depending on how deep you want to get mechanically, but, you know, some of the vocabulary might be a little bit over the head of some of the listeners. But we would talk about things like wrist position and was my chin behind my front foot when I landed and how stiff was I on my front foot? What was the degree of knee flexion in my land foot? You know, where was I out on the rubber and how was the ball feeling in my hand and how was my grip? And, you know, like just some things that really made me go. And, and you know, you're talking about, you know, those are the kinds of things that are very complex when you get into it, but I had done it so long and so much that, you know, it was just like a normal conversation. And so it wasn't very difficult to make mid game adjustments. And anything, the thing that's important that makes me, that would always make me as good as, you know, Max Scherzer or Clayton Kershaw or anybody like that was you have to be able to make mid game adjustments on the fly and be able to arrest the momentum when things weren't going your way. Right. Like, so you, you know, you give up a leadoff single, you walk a couple of guys, all of a sudden you got bases loaded, no outs. Well, in a blink, it can be for nothing if you're not careful at that level. So you've got to be able to arrest that and, and refine what you're, what, what has made you successful and, and people's ability, pitchers ability to do that. That's the separator at the big league level is guys who can do that in the middle of a start quicker than anybody else. And that became something I really worked hard at. And, you know, I was able to kind of go in between innings. If I had a rough inning with my knuckleball, I'd go in between, look at some video. And I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And so I go back out in between innings in my first seven pitches of my warm up. I'd work on that one thing and I could fix it. And so that really helped with my consistency. And it's always a battle for consistency. You know, when you're throwing a knuckleball, which is a, a ball that can't really predict where it's going to be, front offices and people who are evaluating you, they don't have a stomach for it because they don't understand it. And so you're constantly having to prove and reprove that you can make the necessary adjustments so that that, that inning or that game doesn't get out of hand and they can depend on you for seven innings and two runs. I mean, like that's that was my goal every time out, seven innings, two runs. Seven innings, two runs. I'm, I built my career around that mentality. And so I had to be able to do that well. And so, you know, I had to I had to be proactive on being my, my own best coach. All right. So in your book, Wherever I Wind Up, you describe yourself as a 4A starter when you were kind of stuck in the minor leagues. What got you over the hump from being a 4A starter to a Cy Young Award winner? Well, you know, I had I had a very mediocre start to my major league career. Uh, you know, I, I, I eked out probably two and a half years of service time as a conventional pitcher. So the first 10 years of my career, you know, I was a, a conventional pitcher. You know, I threw hard. That's why I was drafted. You know, at the University of Tennessee, I was doing mid-90s with a good sinker. And that's what made me good. And so I... As that started to deteriorate over time, you know, I had to really figure out, you know, if I wanted to stay here, what kind of weapon did I have at the big league level to get big league hitters out? And, you know, I stumbled um, on the knuckleball, which is something that I always threw. And Oral Hershiser was the one that kind of identified it in me at first because he would see me playing catch with it on the side when I was a conventional pitcher with the Rangers. And he said, hey, man, you might want to turn to that full time at some point in your career where, well, little did I know that some point in my career was coming up really, really fast because I was just losing velocity year after year. And in 2005, I made the, the jump to being a knuckleballer after the first 10 years of, of my career. And that's the thing that helped me be, quote unquote, a 4A starter to a major league dependable, you know, front of the rotation type starter was, you know, I had to put in the time and the work to get my knuckleball in shape to do that. My conventional stuff, I could have never done that. You know, I just I wasn't Greg Maddox. I threw hard. And when that velocity started to drop, I didn't have the skill set to be able to, you know, move the ball around and 
and hit the spots I needed to, to be uber successful throwing 88 to 90 miles an hour in the American League West. I just, I couldn't do it. And so that knuckleball provided me with the opportunity uh, to be more than a 4A starter to, to answer your question. That's interesting. You, you talk about how you started to lose velocity and then you tried to switch up your craft find something that works for you, and then you win a Cy Young with it. I guess my question is, what advice or do you see a space in baseball where pitchers start to lose velocity later in their career and more people adopt the knuckleball like you did? Do you see that happening as the future approaches in the game? Yeah, that's a good question. I certainly feel like there should be opportunities for that. You know, it depends on how forward thinking the front offices are. You know, I've been approached by multiple clubs about my availability to come down and work with a select group of people that they were going to probably release anyway, but they still have good arm strength. And Mm -hmm. some of them conceptually could understand the idea of a good knuckleball because they would recognize its worth, but they would also recognize that, you know, there's only been in the history of Major League Baseball, which is over 20,000 players, there's only been about 35 knuckleball pitchers. And so the percentages are minute with people who have come in and been able to establish themselves as good knuckleball pitchers. And I've been out of the league now for six years or going on six years. And so the longer that somebody is out, of, as, as the longer that that pitch is not at the forefront of people seeing it every fifth day, like in Tim, Tim carried the banner for a while when, before I got there. I carried the banner for a while and now nobody's really picked it up. And so the longer it goes where nobody mm-hmm. picks it up, the harder it is for a front office to have the vision that this can be a real beneficial thing for a staff in terms of eating up innings and and changing up looks and lineups, even as a reliever coming in after a guy throwing 95 and you throw that, you know, I mean, there's all kinds of possibilities there, but it takes a forward thinking uh, organization to be able to see past the metrics and the the hardship of not being able to predict it and evaluate it and giving guys chances to do it. All right. So I believe that currently there's only one like active knuckleballer in the game and his name is Mickey Janice. I believe he's in Baltimore system. Have you been able to work with him at all? No, you know, he's a guy that I followed, but you know, he, he might have a stable of guys he turns to that really help him. I've never, he's never reached out to me per se. Maybe, maybe we've talked once, but it's not something that, I've consistently visited with him about, but there have been others that like Stephen Wright, for instance, that was there, you know, I think he's, he might be retired now. He was a guy that had a good shot at it, but just got hurt and then ran into some difficulty and never quite got the chance again. And there's another minor leaguer or two out there floating around. So there's probably two or three guys out there that are at least using it as some part of their repertoire that could eventually evolve into a full-time knuckleballer but you're right there's only one out there right now that has any chance in this moment of, of contributing at the big league level that's that's sad to me because i really i think it's a valuable thing and it certainly makes the game super interesting for the spectator all right so like the small fraternity of knuckleball pitchers you guys obviously pick each other's brains all the time how different are the different cues between each one of you uh different grips all of that kind of stuff compared to a conventional pitcher throwing a fastball, curveball, slider, anything like that? Yeah, you know, I think there's some some th- certain things that have to be in place for a knuckleballer to be successful, no matter who you are. But there's also, you know, five or six things that makes every one of us very unique. Like I, nobody ever threw it as hard as I did. That was one of the things that gave me a lot of success. I'm, I'll never forget Phil Necro. I went to visit him. A big life-changing moment for me was, you know, I wanted to be like Tim Wakefield. I mean, because that's what Buck Showalter and, and Oral Hershiser kind of saw in me. They saw, oh, here's Tim Wakefield able to do for us what Tim Wakefield does for the Red Sox. And so I, I kind of modeled my, my 
my process after him and he would throw his knuckleball anywhere from 61 to 69, 70 miles an hour at most. I, I still had enough arm strength to be able to throw it a lot harder. And I went to visit Phil Necro in between my 2008, 2009 season. And he said to me, he said, Ray, he said, you have the capacity to throw it harder. The reason that we didn't throw it harder is because we didn't have the arm strength to throw it harder, but you do. And you could throw a really angry, he called it an angry knuckleball um, by throwing it as hard as you can and still taking the spin off. So we really played around with that in that off season. And that was a kind of a life changing moment for me because I was I was able to compete at the level with my knuckleball, but not not really establish myself. And so when I started throwing it hard and changing speeds off of that, you know, things started to change pretty quickly for me after that. Yeah. Of the knuckleball fraternity, who would you say, if you had to pick one, has had the biggest impact on your career? Wow, man, that's hard to answer. You know, I, I had like the Jedi Council of knuckleballers, I, you know, at my disposal. So it was I can't pick one. I, I would say this, you know, they all came along at times in my career when I really needed them. So Charlie Huff was the first guy that really got his hands on me. He changed my grip right away. He gave me a real visual for what my mechanic needed to look look like. Then I, I was able to get up to the big leagues and then work with Tim Wakefield when when he was with Boston and I was with Seattle. He helped me understand something a little bit different and gave me another piece. And then, like I said before, I, I worked with Phil Necro after that. And Phil kind of gave me the final piece. And then I also had to bring my own personality to the pitch. I couldn't say I'm going to be Phil Necro or, or Charlie Huff or Candy Adi or any of those guys. I had to be Ari Dickey and find out what that really meant. And so Joe Necro probably threw it as similar to me as anybody. And I, I watched a lot of film on him. I didn't get to talk to him. But he was also a guy that I really kind of modeled some of my stuff after. But at the end of the day, you know, it, it had to be what made me unique. And what made me unique was that I could throw it hard. I could throw it up to 82. 83 miles an hour, uh, which was really, really hard for knuckleball. And I could also command the zone with other pitches, like a perfect start for me in 120 pitches, 110 pitches. I would throw probably 95 knuckleballs and I'd throw 15 other pitches. But those other 15 pitches were consequential because I'd have to manage the count with them. I'd have to get off the barrel of a bat with my sinker or I'd have to change speeds with my change up. All pitches that I used as a conventional pitcher, but still had to continue to develop. That was one of the things that helped separate me too. I got a lot of outs with things that weren't knuckleball related because I still had command of some of the other stuff. And it was just a matter of finding my own identity with the pitch. And then things started to really shape and change for me successfully. So in 2011, you made the film knuckleball and mm -hmm. they were following you around for the season. What was that like for you? And do you think that a lot of players would be affected by a film crew following them around? Yeah. And I, you know, I was affected. So sure. I do think that, you know, and I'm not saying I was even affected in a negative way all the time, but you certainly had to contend with some things that other guys didn't have to contend with by opening yourself up to that. You know, it was, it was in the year that Tim Wakefield was going for his 200th win. So they were kind of bouncing off his story and they were bouncing off my story as this kind of guy who was trying to establish himself and it was kind of a passing of the torch at some point too you know kind of film where he was retiring at the end of that year and I was trying to come into my own and so it was a real neat storyline but it was difficult but it also gave me an outlet to process out kind of outings and what I felt about how my you know, they were there every time, just about outside of about three or four starts, they were there. And I, I'm sure it got annoying for the organization, maybe just that they would, that they were hanging around a lot. But, you know, we tried to do it in a way that it wouldn't interfere with anything that anybody else was doing. I think that's one of the reasons. I think it could only have worked, too, in New York. You know, New York is kind of the place where you can go be original and do your own thing and it not ruffle too many feathers. Um, and thankfully, we were able to do that without it getting in the way too much. 
Awesome. Awesome. All right. So as we wrap up here, Matt, do you have a question? Yeah, I couldn't remember my other question from before, but another one did pop up. Um, you did mention RA about working potentially teams that reached out to you and they talked about the idea, maybe you coming back and working with them. Does it have to be a perfect storm situation for you to come back and work with these teams? No, not necessarily. You know, I, I just think it just, it's going to, the level of commitment, like I don't want to just tiptoe into it. I, you know, it'd be nice to have a, a, an organization that, that gives me a little bit of latitude on how to come in and really help shape some of these guys and give them mm-hmm. really honest feedback about what might be helpful and whatnot all that but I think it I do really kind of feel like it's going to happen it's just we're in a season of baseball where it's metrics driven and and there are a lot of people who throw 100 miles an hour and you know 100 miles an hour is probably going to be successful uh 60 65 to 75 miles an hour with no spin yeah you don't really you can't really project that out it's hard so it's going to take some time but I do think that there will be a scenario where that could occur. And I never filed uh, retirement papers either. So there could be a scenario where I want to bounce back in at some point. We, you know, It's oh. funny you bring that up. We were just talking uh, with Josh Lindblom, who just informally announced his retirement this past offseason. He doesn't know what the process looks like. And while you're here, can you explain, is it a formal paperwork process? Yeah. In the yeah once, you, once you file papers with the Players Association and the union and all that, you know, it's pretty much a done deal at that point. And I, I didn't retire because, you know, my last year I threw, I think, 190, like almost 200 innings and one double digit games. And like I was I still had stuff in the tank and just made the decision because I wanted to be a full time father and husband. I had drugged my kids all around creation, chasing the dream of being a big, big league baseball player. And they really deserved more of me than what I was able to give to them as a player. And so I retired when I was 42 and still had stuff left in the tank, I feel like. And so I didn't want to file papers in that moment and just never have. And so a knuckleball is something that Phil Necro threw his last complete game shutout, I think at 46 years old. So mm-hmm. it's not outside the realm of possibility that, you know, you could see a 50 year old knuckleballer out there in good shape. It would take a risk on an organization's part, you know, but that risk might pay off. You never know. So we'll see. Never know. All right. So my last question before you, before we let you go is your prediction for this season's New York Mets. Well, you know, I, I love the Mets. They were the team that kind of helped me resurrect my career in a lot of ways and have so many fond memories of that city and the fan base. I want it so badly for the fans. I had such a great time with those guys. You know, I mean, there's no better place in the world to play when you're having success than New York, but there's no worse place to play if you're not having success. And I was thankful that I was able to have three good years there and really bond with the fan base. And so I think I'm speaking out of my heart here because I think I grew up a Braves fan and they're in the same, they're in the same, uh, conference so it's hard but I think they've got a heck of a good shot and if they made it great if Atlanta makes it great but one of those two teams needs to make it for me all right good to hear good to hear all right all right Dickie thank you so much for stepping in the box today and joining us and we will talk to you soon appreciate the time you got it, no problem see you thank you take care wow what incredible story from his early years of hardship and abuse to his rise to stardom in MLB Matt from the abuse he endured at from during his entire childhood to overcome all of that and become Cy Young Award winner and one of the most dominant arms in the game over a stretch of three or four years is incredible. And this is super cliche, but I'm going to say it. He is a guy that's been through adversity. I think that every human almost ever has been through some sort of adversity or another at any given point in their life. But this is a guy truly starting, like you said, from the, you know, the early abuse 
to, you know, getting into his major league career. You think it's over a couple of years in, this guy doesn't have it, losing velocity, his numbers are going downhill. He was born again, essentially, for for lack of a better term. Born again in the mid-2000s and got better and better and better. Uh, and he said it himself in 2010, um, he had a fantastic turnaround season. And then what do you know, two years later, he's the best pitcher in the National League, posting a 2.73 ERA and just wiping the floor across the board and complete control. And I say control loosely with a knuckleball because as you heard, he doesn't necessarily always know where it ends up in the mitt, but he knows how to get it in the strike zone and did it success- very successfully and top five ever. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Matt, I also thought it was super interesting when he said that, because when you go back in history and you think about it, like this is certainly accurate and RA can speak to it, obviously, to a better degree than either of us can. But no one ever has really started their career as a knuckleball pitcher. No one came up through the minor leagues saying, I can't wait to get to the majors and throw my knuckleball and have it just be that. He, like every knuckleball pitcher, has essentially been through some form of adversity. Tim Wakefield, he was a first baseman with the Pirates when they transitioned him to a knuckleball pitcher. All right, he was a conventional pitcher, throwing high 90s and then eventually lost it. Mm-hmm. And uh, found so him and Tim Wake, so many others, just like actually not so many others, as RA was citing that small fraternity that they have throughout the game. Yeah. And uh, I thought when you had asked him about, you know, what does a pitching coach say to you when mound visit, for example, right? This is knuckleball pitchers are not everyday guys in Major League Baseball. They're well, not the even, other thing, Matt. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I mean, go ahead. I was just going to say they're not everyday guys. And they're also like you don't even see them every few years, too. It's almost like once in a decade you see like a one standout knuckleball pitcher ish. And that's it. But and that's if you've and that's if you've been around the game and you're paying attention. Like we we talked about Mickey Janice for uh, just like one second, and he he is the only one that I know off the top of my head who is a primary knuckleballer in baseball, not even MLB, just in any level of baseball. I'm right. sure there's others that I'm omitting. I'm certainly not <clears throat> an exact expert on this topic, but I think that there. I think honestly, more and more pitchers should have at least everyone who has ever picked up a baseball has messed around with a knuckleball grip a time or two. I Matt, I know you and I are very guilty of that. Listen, man, I used to, I'll never forget going back to like tryouts early spring. We would, all the coaches are standing there with their arms crossed. And a lot of baseball players can relate to this when you try to impress the coaches during warmups. And sometimes for no reason, I'd stand there and try to throw the nastiest off-speed pitches. And then I'd throw in a knuckleball and either soar it over his head or it two bounces into them. But it takes a certain skill set. And he was talking about release angle was big for him. Like it takes, you have to be so precise with it because the ball quite literally is so out of control that it's, it's a once in a really generational thing for the most part. Another thing, Another thing we didn't get into with him too much, Matt, is the importance of like fingernails. Um, Mm -hmm. Because I I remembered specifically during RA's career, he was on the DL a couple of times because he had a cracked fingernail or a hangnail or something like that. And as minor as that might seem to an everyday person like you or I, if you're like knuckleball pitchers rely basically solely on their fingernails. fingernails. So when one of those is cracked or ripped, it's... I would you think that it's the equivalent. It. Can... I would think that that it's the equivalent of having like a broken finger and trying yeah. to pitch with that. Yeah, and I'm assuming yeah. that it hurts or a blister or anything like that. It's it's the backbone of a knuckleball, and when that's your primary pitch, and that's how you're getting you know through games. 
I mean, if 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 he resorted to fastballs and curveballs, he probably, you know, if he if his knuckleball wasn't working one day, he probably wasn't going to have a successful outing. His knuckleball had to be on, and uh, he pretty much said it himself. And this is what I wanted to say before, earlier, Matt. We talked about the pitching coach conversations. Imagine being his catcher, and imagine not really. Usually, these guys have their own specific catchers, and I understand that. But even even so, the catcher doesn't know where it's going any more than the pitcher does, and being back there squatting up, going to get it, or when it's just floating and it's just hanging, you're watching the other team just smash it, smash it, smash it. You got to like, you got to wonder when the hook is coming. Sometimes mm-hmm. these guys, I, w- I would assume these guys have to want to lose their minds sometimes. I've always been a fan of the great Dougie Marabelli. I think he was so underappreciated as a catcher when he would catch Tim Wakefield way back in the day. If you don't know who Doug Marabelli is, you absolutely should. Yes, these guys had their own catchers because nobody else really a wanted to catch the knuckleball because it really makes some catchers look stupid. It really does, and it really can. And mind you, they're also wearing a different mitt with with a little bit less padding too, and with a wider pocket because any last second movements from the ball too. So it's it's a special ability on the bump. It's a, you need a special ability behind the plate. It changes the game and. I know we talked about like the future of the knuckleball. It'll be interesting. I know you said there's really one guy now that's predominantly known for throwing the knuckleball, but it will be interesting to see if if this could be the future where, you know, you see a pitcher in his decline. Well, if you introduce a knuckleball and you teach him how to throw it, if Ari Dickey wants to come back and show some people how to throw knuckleballs, if you can introduce this into into a guy's in his stuff, there might be opportunity for how for pitchers to have a little bit longer careers because you can't keep unless you're Nolan Ryan, you can't throw upper nineties and you know in your late thirties, early forties for the most part. Justin Verlander is not doing a too too bad of a job at it. I mean, I listen. There there are certain aliens here. Okay, there's there are certain extraterrestrials in this world, and and Justin Verlander is one of them. We're talking about the the you know your everyday your everyday guy. I have to bring you back uh, like three minutes ago, Matt. You told the audience that Doug Mirabelli is a surefire, you need to know name throughout baseball. I'm going I, to tell the audience that's not true. If you don't know who Doug Mirabelli is, you can still be a perfectly fine baseball fan. Oh my God. You are so incorrect. You need to go back and look who Doug Mirabelli is. He is a legend. He is a legend of the, we're talking like the 04 to like, Oh, like the middle 2010s. Well, no, why it's are like you telling? Why, no, he wasn't. No. And why are in, you telling in, me? In, in a very small region of the U.S. known as Massachusetts, he, he was a legend. If you were a Red Sox fan, you knew who Doug Marabelli was. I just, a legend? A legend? Legend in the sense that he is so well, like he was so respected by Red Sox A legend. <laughs> A legend in the sense that you only hear about him. He was so respected by Red Sox fans. Again, I think he was underappreciated as Red Sox fans. But as a baseball, as a whole, he's not not a legend in MLB. He's also not, like statistically, this is, listen, I I think you and I here are on different pages about what I'm calling a legend. He's just, his, his name is legendary. Just the name Doug Marabelli is legendary. You so you can't get behind the, that. The last the last time no, I can't get behind that. Doug Mirabelli is not a Red Sox legend. The last no, time you went no. to Fenway Park, Matt. The, the last time you went to Fenway Park, you saw a lot of Doug Mirabelli jerseys running around. Did you? There should be. <laughs> there absolutely should be. If I saw someone at Fenway Park with a Doug Mirabelli jersey, I'd go up to him and I'd give him a kiss. Okay. Okay. On that note. <laughs> 
we're going to wrap up this show. We thank R.A. Dickey so much for coming on the show, stepping into the box, sharing his story with us. If you want to read his book, Wherever I Wind Up, My Quest for Truth, Authenticity, and the Perfect Knuckleball, it's a New York Times bestseller. You can check it out on Amazon today. And then go look up Doug Marabelli on YouTube.